0: Eventually, uh, I'll put some verses up on the screen. It has been a while, so I want to go back and I want to do some review. And uh, I know that this topic is a little bit on the theological side and a little bit on the historical side, and it can be sometimes like wading into some knee deep water, but I do want it to be uh, profitable for us. I want this to strengthen our faith, I want this to be uh, a way in which we can renew our confidence in the word of God. I've chosen that as our theme, confidence in the scriptures, confidence in the Bible for our theme for the year 2023, Uh, Lord willing, we'll take a break from the uh, prophecy series after tonight's message, of course, Mike Schrock will be with us next Sunday, and then on Sunday nights, I want to bring some messages on the theme for the year. Confidence in the Bible, but I've been using this Sunday School series. I appreciate Dan Clark uh, teaching the last uh, five or six weeks. I know we had Michael Garamy here as well, but since it's been about a month and a half or so since we were in this, I thought I'd go back at least, uh, whoops, I guess I need to connect these two devices, don't I? They won't talk to each other unless they have the right connection, so there, that should work. Okay. So going back all the way to these six words, if we want to add illumination as a seventh word, I've put it uh, under the category of interpretation. But we see these six words that help us in understanding the inspired word of God and how he preserved his word for us today. And this is not meant to be controversial, I know that there are uh, some people who, uh, rightly so, hold to some very strong views on uh, some of these particular uh, areas in this study of bibliology and our study of the Bible. And I know I'm going to deal with some of that, and I'm probably going to tread where only angels fear to tread, okay? But I don't want that to come across in the wrong way. Um, it's it 's not that uh, we are uh, trying to push some sort of agenda or make some big change in the church or something like that, so I want to put that out there ahead of time as a, as a qualification, but we do have to understand these important truths regarding how we got the Bible, how God delivered his word to us and preserved his word so that we have with full confidence God's word in our hands. We're not missing anything. We're not lacking anything. There's not something that we're still out there searching for. But it all begins with revelation. God making himself known to man. Even Adam and Eve in the garden created beings. They were perfect As in the original creation, but did they know where they had come from without God telling them? They were there. God had to reveal to them how they got there. What are they doing? What do they do with all these plants and animals in all of its perfection? God had to tell them what they were there for, what they were to do. They were to keep the garden. They were to be fruitful and multiply. There were specific things that they had to know from God. So we see revelation to man from God as he walked with them in the garden. They had to have that relationship with God. He had to reveal himself to them, even as early as the Garden of Eden, in a state of paradise, of perfection. Of course, then sin marred that paradise, that perfection, And then we continue in our understanding of God's revelation as God continued to reveal his word. And we talk about the prophets, of course, Moses and the Pentateuch. And we talk about the poetic books, Psalms, Proverbs. And we talk about, again, the prophetic books all the way from the major prophets to the minor prophets. And taking those three divisions, the the Pentateuch, the law... The writings, poetry, and the prophets. Those are three general divisions uh, that are often referred to. That even in the New Testament, sometimes it's two, Moses and the prophets. And sometimes in the New Testament, the division is three. Moses, the law, prophets, and the writings. That's encompassing the entire Old Testament. And then, of course, the New Testament. The 27 books of the New Testament. And we have spent a lot of time, and we'll go back and review how God delivered his word to the men that he chose, led by the Holy Spirit, to record his inspired word. And we talked about inspiration as being something different than a Beethoven or a Mozart or Handel, who composed great works of music. Were they very inspiring? Were they given incredible gifts? Sure. And we could talk about other areas besides music, great authors. We could talk about great filmographers. And on and on we could go about the creative aspects of mankind. And there are geniuses out there who have created and invented and built. But that's not the same as the inspired word of God. And so we have men moved by the holy spirit born along by the holy spirit who recorded the very words that god breathed that's inspiration god's method for delivering his word to man preservation so we have the inspired word of god and then that's then preserved over hundreds and thousands of years and god protected his word and preserved it for us today translation multiple languages Well, the original language of the Old Testament is Hebrew and Aramaic. Of the New Testament is Greek. How many of you are fluent in Hebrew? How about Aramaic? Greek? Koine Greek, not classical Greek, Koine Greek. None of us could raise our hands, right? I took two years of Greek, barely, well, I'll have to admit, I I got a C or better. I stayed. I didn't, say, I didn't stay above C level, but I got a C or better. I think I may have told you this before, but one semester I got a D. And I came back after the summer, and I got a note in my box, and it said there was an error in your grade, and you ended up with a C minus. I was like, yes! <laughs> Helped my GPA, I never got below a C, and uh, Dr. Smith, I met him years later uh, he works for bju press and i uh, was on a i was on a trip down to bju press and i and dr smith came into the room and i said hey dr smith i said you don't you don't remember me at all but i was in one of your greek classes and he was like yeah that was a long time ago and i was like yeah and i said there was a semester where there was an error in the grading his he head dropped And he said, I almost lost my job over that. (laughs) He said, I messed up on that. And I was like, I was in that class. I said, I was never so excited when I came back and I found out my grade had improved. He said, I was in so much trouble, I thought I was going to get fired because I messed up on the grading. But anyway, um, I I learned a little bit of Greek in two years, enough that I can use my helps. um, But I do not claim to be any kind of expert when it comes to the Greek language i had professors who carried their greek new testament around as their bible because they could read it uh, so fluently interpretation we get to the point where we have to of course interpret what did god say in his word he meant what he said he said what he meant we have to understand the meaning of the text as god intended not for us to just add our interpretation to the bible but for us to interpret what God said. And that involves, obviously, translation as well, and then illumination, the work of the Holy Spirit as believers, and the Holy Spirit guiding us into all truth, and then application, which I think is honestly the hardest part. I mean, we can argue all day long about translation and interpretation and illumination, but I think the hardest part is the application. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we have to take those truths, and we have to obey them. We have to live them out. So, canonicity, very clearly, God warned regarding adding to or taking away from his word. We see towards the beginning in the law, we see in the middle of the Bible, in Proverbs, as well as in the last books of the Bible, Jude and in Revelation we see these warnings about adding to or taking away from the Word of God. So we see the canon is complete. It is closed. And God says, anybody who adds to it or takes away from it, there will be specific plagues. And we can look at, in history, those who have changed the Word of God, added to, there have been serious judgments from the Word of God. Some of them are in the form of a Jim Jones, a David Koresh. Some of them are in these uh, false religions. And we can see the judgment. It's not always in a cataclysmic judgment, but there is consequential judgment. A sowing and reaping judgment where the word of God has been added to or taken away from. Um, Even in places where it has been ignored, set aside. Look at places around the world where countries are, are are in, they're deceived by Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam. Uh, Michael Garamie, when he was here, we had a good conversation. He may even have mentioned it. But look at how many people he has seen saved out of the Muslim world. And he talked about it um, when we were having lunch that day. He said people are waking up, especially with the Internet and the ability to see uh, things around the world that they couldn't see 25, 30 years ago. He said there are a lot of Muslims who are seeing the emptiness of their religion. They're seeing how backwards their culture is, the lack of freedom, the, the, the despair, the injustice, and it's causing them to want something better to know something more about God because their God doesn't seem to be doing a very good job. And so as Michael Jeremy has had opportunity to share the gospel, he's seen some of his own family get saved out of Islam. He has seen uh, fruit. And as he's preaching the gospel, and, and that is being um, sent into Iran and other places there in the Middle East, uh, God is giving him great fruit, but we've seen where the Word of God is added to, taken away from, altered in such a way that it is not the true Word of God. Jehovah's Witnesses—they've taken and they've made up their own translation, the New World Translation—and look at the uh, the iniquity in uh, among the Jehovah's Witnesses. I know, you know, we don't see them in the same realm as a David Koresh or a Jim Jones but there is still a consequential judgment, a blindness and a despair in any of those false religions and ultimately God brings judgment on those who add to or take away from his word. So, did God promise to preserve his word? We talked about this several weeks ago. Yes, he did. And this speaks even to the very character of God himself. The word of God preserved And preserved accurately, trustworthy for us today is a testimony to the holiness and the omnipotence and the omniscience of our God, who promised to preserve his word and has kept that promise. So if we are missing the word of God, or if there's still something out there that only certain people with certain secret privileges, if only secret societies and those with secret privileges and those who have the higher knowledge, if only they can truly receive the word of God, then has God kept his word? Has God kept his promise to preserve his word? seems like it would cast some doubt on on that. Uh, No, God has made uh, his word very public, has made his word very accessible to the common person, In the common language, Hebrew and Aramaic, as well as the Koine Greek, God even chose to give his word in the Koine Greek, not the classical Greek, and throughout the world to this day, as we see the word of God translated, it is being translated into the language of the common man, as Dr. Kim, as I've used him as an illustration several times, he has completed a translation from the Hebrew into a dialect that is spoken there in Burma, in Myanmar, so that those people can have the word of God. So how did God preserve his word? We went all the way through this. In the Old Testament, from the ancient scribes to the Masoretes, to the rabbinic Bible, to Bomberg and Ben Shayim, Kittel's Biblia Hebraica, Stuttgart's Biblia Hebraica, The Septuagint, the Isaiah scroll, which was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Jerome's Latin Vulgate, which is 382 to 405 AD. I kept putting BC. I finally got that corrected. And then the Gutenberg Bible. So the Vulgate uh, was the main Bible for a thousand years, roughly. And the Gutenberg Bible was the first Book printed by the Gutenberg Printing Press, and it was the Latin Vulgate, the Bible. And then we get into the New Testament. We have Wycliffe's English translation, we have the Lollards, we have Erasmus. Erasmus was criticized in similar ways to what we hear today Uh, among some of the debates about translations. Erasmus received some of the same criticisms. Because why did we need a Greek New Testament? Why did we need to compile the manuscripts and have a Greek New Testament from the manuscripts? We have the Latin Vulgate. That's what people were criticizing Erasmus for. He was receiving some very nasty threats. How dare you mess with the word of God? The word of God is the Vulgate. Well, the Vulgate's a translation. It's it's Latin. What was the Old Testament, the original language of the Old Testament? Hebrew and Aramaic. What was the original language of the New Testament? Greek. So the Vulgate was a translation. And when Erasmus came along and wanted to compile a, a Greek New Testament, people were like, why mess with the Vulgate? Well... The manuscript evidence is absolutely fascinating. And I've said this before, and we'll get into this a little bit more, and let me back up and just finish this slide first. But Tyndale's New Testament, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, Geneva Bible, which was the Bible brought by the pilgrims to America, to the New World, the King James Bible, 1611, and then, of course, we have modern versions, which then brings up the big debate, which manuscripts, which translation What about translation, philosophy, accuracy, etc.? So, a quick review. John Wycliffe, a great hero of the faith, hated by the Catholic Church, so much so that 43 years after his death, his bones were dug up and burned and ashes thrown into the Swift River. For doing what? For doing what? For translating from the Latin Vulgate into the English language. Translating the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into the English language. Because fewer and fewer people knew Latin. And then, of course, the Roman Catholic Church had hijacked that. And as the people in the Dark Ages were mostly illiterate, what was the mass, the Roman Catholic Mass, what language was it done in? Latin. And then if you were told you could only understand the Bible and The Roman Catholic Church isn't too far removed from this today. Now, I understand there is an app out there, and there's a Roman Catholic priest who is doing Bible readings and giving interpretation. And I believe the app is called Hallow. And it's one of the number one or top five apps. I'm not recommending that you go to Hallow, download it, and do your Bible reading by a Catholic priest who gives his interpretation as he reads through the Bible on this app. I don't recommend that, but it is one of the number one apps being used uh, around the world today, and I don't know exactly how all those, th- those statistics work, but I believe it's called Hallow. Um, I could have that mixed up with the prayer app, because there's a Catholic prayer app that's also very popular today. Well, in the Dark Ages, most people were illiterate, If only the Latin Vulgate was available and people didn't know Latin, well, the Roman Catholic Church then, if somebody translates the Bible into English for the common person to understand, that's a threat to the Catholic Church, they go after Wycliffe. They hated him. And they even burned his bones 43 years after his death. He's known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. Two translations from the Latin Vulgate into the English language. The second was completed by one of his disciples 10 years after His death. All Christian life is to be measured by Scripture by every word thereof. Tyndale, incredible. He's known as the Prince of Translators. 1526, first translation of the New Testament into English from the Greek language. About 90% of our King James Version follows Tyndale's New Testament translation. Isn't that incredible? He spoke seven languages. He began translating the Old Testament from the original Hebrew. He was martyred in 1536, and he has the great quote about the plowboy. Being able to have the Bible in his language. If God spare my life ere many years I will cause a boy that driveth the plough shall know more the scripture than thou doest. This is down at the Sermon Audio headquarters, and this is uh, John Rogers. He translated the rest of the Old Testament, not completed by Tyndale, and along with Tyndale's New Testament, half the Old Testament completed the translation to English fifteen thirty seven. And uh, he had the pen name of Matthew, so John Rogers is the one who translated the Matthews Bible. But I believe that Matthews is is his pen name, his real name is John Rogers. Okay, that's a quick review. Questions so far on that? I know that's drinking out of a fire hose. (laughs) We did spend some time on that several weeks ago, but uh, it's been a while. Yes? Farsi, yes uh huh Correct yeah they don't even allow translations right They don't, recognize. They don't correct yes yes but it's, so you read the canon, why do, do not I mean, Yes Yes To, to to Michael, how can I how come I can't have the Bible, my Bible, the Quran, in his in his unsaved days as a Muslim? How come I can't have it in a language that I know and understand, speak, read, right? And it caused created doubt in his mind. What are they hiding from me? Etc. Yeah, good point. Okay, so translation, yes, Earl. Exactly. There, there are some pretty big bones you have to spit out, because they might have some very conservative political views, but there's some big theological bones that you've got to spit out that are going to choke you. Yes? Yes? And again, it, it became about the way that Islam controlled the people, too. We are the ones who are the only ones who can interpret the Quran. And I think the quran has been through maybe three revisions. It got lost at one point and had to be recopied from Muhammad's memory. And he was, I think, he even suffered from some form of epilepsy. And, of course, he was not a, a good man, very violent and um, other, other things, immoral things. But... All right, so good comments. Thank you for those. Translation philosophy, okay? Revelation, inspiration, preservation, translation. Now, again, I know I'm walking where angels fear to tread, and I don't want this to, in any way, shape, or form, come across as controversial. I'm not on some agenda trying to take my big flag and stick it in somebody's dead body, okay? (laughs) That's not my point. It's important that we understand translation, in philosophy of translation. Because there are a lot of very bad translations that are out there. Terrible ones. And translation has a philosophy because literally you cannot take a word-for-word translation, literal word-for-word translation in most languages into another language because there are different vocabulary words. There's different... Um, syntax. Uh, some of you who know other languages, I'm going to pick on Clayton here, who who knows Spanish. There's even a difference from Spain Spanish to South American and Central American Mexican Spanish, and it's yeah. And it's very hard to translate exactly word for word, especially when there are vocabulary words or phrases, syntax, that is not available in English that was in Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, okay? So dynamic equivalency versus formal equivalency. It's a way to try to break this down to help us understand Dynamic equivalency is less formal, less literal, more interpretive, and tends toward paraphrasing. Now, that word paraphrase is a scary word in Bible translation, because paraphrasing is dangerous in Bible translation, okay? But, even in the most conservative translations, there has to be some level of paraphrasing because the understanding of the syntax or the vocabulary or the word order can be very, very difficult. So sometimes even the translator with the most conservative view of the Bible, believing 100% that the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God, they still will have to sometimes do a little bit of paraphrasing, but it is on the very low percentage side. Most good, proper translation of a a Greek or a Hebrew or an Aramaic text should take the formal equivalency, literal word-for-word text and syntax, with that caveat that there are a lot of places you can never go exactly word for word because of the differences in the language. Okay, And I am not a Bible translator or a translator of really any language other than maybe uh, infant, toddler, and even that. I'm, I'm out of date. I'm working on teen right now. I'm working on the teen vocabulary. And I get a weekly email that helps me with some of the words. Now, I'm still way behind when it comes to text. I'm still working on the acronyms for text. But there's all these different... Oh, and then there's the emoji language, right? And certain emojis that go... Anyway. Dynamic equivalency, formal equivalency. A conservative, more accurate translation will have a higher percentage of formal equivalency. But understand... All translations use some measure of both. They have to because of the lack of complete one-on-one from language to language where there's differences, again, in word order, vocabulary, and syntax. Okay, another very dangerous topic is textual criticism. Textual criticism has a very bad side The German rationalist theologians from the 1800s, their form of higher criticism was to dismantle the word of God. They did not believe in the inspired, infallible word of God. They were taking the word of God and trying to take it apart to try to find air or to push their own agenda and human relativism and human rationalism. That higher criticism, that textual criticism is wrong. That is of Satan himself. And there is still some of that that is in churches today. That has come down through the years. It's again part of Satan's lie from the beginning. From Genesis 3. Hath God said. So that, is, that error is still in uh, churches and religious circles. The Jesus Seminar and various... Uh, progressive churches. I just heard a quote, a progressive Christian author who said something about there is a lot of good in the Bible. You catch, do you catch that air? There's a lot of good in the Bible, but we've got to figure out, we've got to learn how to distinguish between what is good and what is bad. That's a progressive Christian author who has sold a very popular book. And a lot of churches have bought into his thinking. A lot of denominations have gone that way. And we've got to be careful in textual criticism that we don't put on the wrong pair of glasses, the wrong lenses. The lenses of CRT. The lenses of whatever. Gender ideology. The lenses of... That can affect a translator. So it's very... We have to be very, very careful in understanding the general definition of textual criticism is just the study of the text of Scripture. I'm not talking about higher criticism. Okay? Lower criticism, criticism, analyzing the manuscripts, and then the right form okay, of higher criticism can include understanding the form of the text, understanding the process of writing and transmission, But it becomes subjective, and that's where the higher criticism, capital H, capital C, German rationalists, and those who are trying to dismantle the Bible, that form of higher criticism we must reject. And uh, we're not going to see a lot of that unless we're in academic circles. But it has come down out of the academic lofty, hierarchies and it's in our classrooms, it's in our educational system, it's in some denominations, some churches, some religion, it's in lots of the books at Barnes and Noble or on Amazon that claim to be religious books and the people claim to be Jesus followers but they are they don't hold to a view of the word of god being the inspired infallible word of god. So Translation philosophy, very, very important. Now, this gets a little academic, I realize, but I don't want to get too confusing here. Oops, I went went too far. There we go. All right, so there are three primary manuscript families. This is something that if we understand this, it'll help us, and this is not to create any kind of doubt this is to bring confidence. No other book has this kind of testimony, has this kind of evidence. None. No other religious book, no other academic book, no other piece of literature has this kind of evidence. Yes? You can go to the Koran. You can go to, I don't know, what all the different religious writings that are out there. I don't know, what did, did Buddha write or did he just meditate? I, you know, Hinduism, I, I can't remember all the different religious writings that are out there. Some of them only have oral traditions. They, they never had a codified book. We have 6,000 manuscripts, some of which date all the way back to 1st century, 2nd century A.D. Incredible. I've said, I've said this before. I believe it's the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer. I think there's only a few hundred manuscripts, and they are several hundred years removed from the original. The Bible has 6,000 Greek manuscripts, just the New Testament alone, much less all the, New, all the Old Testament uh, manuscripts and the, the, the scribes, and we, we already spent a lot of time on that. Three manuscript families. This is the New Testament. Okay? Western. Okay? The manuscripts compiled by Lucian in the 3rd century AD that show some signs of scribal paraphrasing and additions. Don't let that scare us. Byzantine. 95% of the manuscripts are in the Byzantine line, likely copied from the Alexandrian manuscripts and polished carefully by scribes. Don't get scared of the word polished either, okay? I'm going to try to illustrate here in a minute. The Alexandrian manuscript family has four major manuscripts, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Ephraimi, Rescriptus, and Codex Alexandrinus. But there's only about 30 total manuscripts in this family. There is a conciseness to this family of manuscripts. They are unseals, which means they're in all capital letters, no punctuation. (laughs) Have you seen some of these manuscripts? All capital letters, no punctuation, no chapter and verse arrangements. They didn't have printing presses and all the technological uh, ways of printing and copying like we do today. We can print from our phones. We can run a scan on a copier and send it to our email and Uh, All kinds of things. Run off, Lord willing, as we vote on a copier, we'll be able to run off a thousand copies in a month and uh, only pay 25 bucks, you know, roughly. And it's incredible. They didn't have those luxuries. And then there is, it's not a family of manuscripts, but it's a translation view that says the translation should follow what the majority of manuscripts have written. So it's a weight Okay, there's 1,000 manuscripts that have this reading, so we use that one because there's only 500 that have this reading. All right. A lot said there. Let me try to clarify. I don't have a lot of time here. But let's look at Berean's statement of faith. Okay. One of, my, one of my responsibilities as a pastor is to help our, under, our church understand our covenant, our statement of faith, why we are Baptists, why we hold to the doctrines that we hold to, why we believe what we believe. And especially as we have young people growing up, and some of them have been in church since they were little, some have not, as people are getting saved and they come from uh, other backgrounds, it's important for us to have a proper understanding of the church's statement of faith and covenant, so that we as a united body of believers can practice our faith and our church polity in a unified way and be able to then help others who want to join us so that we can explain and we can help them and that we can be good ambassadors for Jesus Christ and in our evangelism. This is one of the primary areas that is being attacked today is the inspiration, the infallibility, the word of God. The LGBTQ movement is ultimately about the authority of God's word. Either God said this or God didn't say this. If God is very clear about sexual ethics, then certain types of sexual activity are an abomination, are a sin. So either God said or He didn't say. So does that not come to the authority of the Word of God? And does that not affect the inspiration of the Word of God, the infallibility of the Word of God? better believe it does. So again, this is right out of our statement of faith. And again, this is not meant as any kind of personal attack or any kind of agenda. I'm not here to create any kind of controversy, okay? But we affirm that the 66 canonical books of the Bible are verbally inspired as found in their original autographs. Modern language Bibles that accurately reflect the originals derive their authority from these or from those autographs so that a good translation of the Bible can be confidently called the Word of God. We reject all translations that reflect theological liberalism, paraphrasing of the text, or political agendas such as gender neutrality, etc. That is an excellent statement on the Bible. That was one of the things, that was one of the first things that we talked about as I became a candidate, and I filled out a questionnaire, and one of the primary questions that was asked of me, and it was one of the things that drew, drew me to, to Berean. The King James translation, being a careful translation, will be the English text used by a Baptist church throughout its ministry in the public proclamation and memorization of God's word. While we value the King James Version, we do not subscribe to nor permit the propagation of the King James only view. That's our statement of faith. Okay? Has anybody ever heard of Ruckman? Okay? Ruckmanites literally believe that the King James corrects the original Greek. There are some in the Ruckmanite group that believe that you can't get saved unless you get saved from unless you're led to Christ from the King James Version. Okay? When we begin to believe that the King James translate the King James translation corrects the original Greek. We are now in a heretical position. We are not holding to the, inspire, the inspiration of the Bible in its original autographs. That's a dangerous, I'm going to say a heretical view. Now, there are very good people who are King James only, and there are various degrees of that. My point isn't to attack anybody who holds to a King James only position. I love the King James. I grew up on it. I love it. There's nothing like Psalm twenty three. There's nothing like Luke two in the Christmas story. There's nothing like the Lord's Prayer. Love the King James. But this is just to help us understand why we have the position and the statement of faith in our statement of faith here at Brian Baptist Church. Okay? So don't have much time, but can I give us one quick example here? Alright. Translation philosophy comes into play. This is a very, very small small sample. Lord willing, in May, after we come back from the spring revival meetings, we'll go into a little bit more detail. At the very top is an interlinear of the King James. Okay, So that which is one word in the original language. You can see the beginning, one word. We have seen, one word. We have looked upon one word. See how we can't do literal word for word? We have to take one Greek word and we get we have looked upon from just that one word in the original language. So that helps us understand a little bit of word for word. But a good conservative Bible translation is going to have majority formal equivalency and less dynamic. Though every translation has to use some, as I've said before. So 1 John 1.1, King James Version. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands of of the word of life. New King James, which is based on the same same, uh, manuscripts, the TR, the Texas Receptus. The New King James is based on the TR. It just removes the these and thous, changes some of the wording. The Holy Ghost becomes Holy Spirit, things like that. But it's based on the TR. Same translation philosophy as the King James Version, just updates the language in some of those areas where the the King's English uh, is is outdated. Not the Bible, not the Word of God is outdated, but the King's English is, is outdated. We don't speak in these and thous. We don't necessarily say that you're changing the Word of God if you say Holy Spirit instead of Holy Ghost. But Ghost was the way the King James translators translated uh, pneumatic or pneuma, pneuma, because pneuma in 1611 had the idea of, a, of, a, of spirit so, or, or, or ghost. And in that day, ghost would have been a more accurate way to help people understand pneuma. We understand spirit um, as the more modern way of saying holy ghost, holy spirit. Okay? It's not that we're changing the word of God by saying holy spirit instead of holy ghost. Just a little bit of an understanding there on that one word. We go through and we get to the NIV. We see a little bit more paraphrase. NASB is very literal. It's almost uh, clunky at times because it tries to be so literal. And then we get to the message. Do we see a problem there? The translators are doing less translating and more interpreting. I'm not saying... You pick up the message and you read it that you're condemned to an eternal hell. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, The message can have some value, but I don't consider it a good translation. There is a lot of interpretation going on in that translation. Okay? See how much that changes? That's two verses. And you can see there's a lot added in there. And it then becomes more subjective more interpretational, and it gets away from that formal equivalency and gets more into the dynamic equivalency. Yes? None. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Questions? We are out of time. Again, I know that this is a, a, a broad topic, but Earl? one one of the reasons yes You're welcome. Thank you, Earl. That's a 1611. We don't even use the 1611. We use probably something like 1769 or something like that, because that's almost unreadable for us today. But that's a 1611. I'll come back to this in May. This is from the preface of the King James. Very hard to read, but we'll come back and we'll look at that in May. And we'll see from the very words of the King James translators themselves what their view of translation was. And there's direct quotes from the preface of the King James. And they have uh, a view of translation that is very, very, very good, but they don't claim to be the supreme authority on translations. And uh, we'll come back to that in a future lesson we're out of time thank you so much Um, i know i probably generated some more questions and hopefully i can help answer some of those um, at another time but thank you for being here this morning we'll get ready for the service to follow and let's pray lord thank you for our time together this morning thank you for the confidence that we can have in the word of god i pray lord that you will help us to not be doubtful believers but to be confident believers assured of the word of god that you have preserved faithfully for us today Help us to go out and to live it and to proclaim it and to stand firmly on the Bible, Lord, your preserved word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll get ready for the service starting in about 13, 14 minutes.